0: Awesome. Hey, glad to have you uh, in the house of God with us here uh, this Sunday morning. Uh, We're just uh, filled with gratitude for all the amazing things that God continues to do here in this region. We're glad to play uh, a small part in it. During the fourth fourth service today, actually, we're doing baby dedications. I think we have 25 or 30 different babies being dedicated just in the fourth service. And so, you know, during quarantine, there wasn't nothing else to do. And so just... Except be fruitful and multiply, which God's people have done. And so people ask me, they say, what's your church growth strategy? I say, shut down the world uh, every couple of years for three or four months and uh, the, the church will grow. And so anyway, we're excited for uh, baby dedications here at the fourth service. Hey, I, I want to say a special thank you to those of you who joined us. And I, I know many of you were praying for us as well. Uh, for our first Revival Night uh, in Seattle, February 6th. Man, God did some incredible things, and we're so excited, looking forward with anticipation for March and April. You know, Monday morning about 8 a.m., we got a letter from uh, the governor's office. Now, they weren't congratulating us on the Seattle event, uh, which you would think they would be, you know, but... uh, They said, now this is their words, not mine, so I'm not tooting my own horn here. But they said, we heard that there was an enormous event with a church named Pursuit in Seattle in violation of some of the governor's uh, COVID mandates. And so I just wear it as a badge of honor, you know, add it to my resume. I'd rather be noticed than ignored. And so, you know, we're just... And I said, hey, well, stay tuned to March and April because we'll be back. And so just... Save a spot for us, photocopy the letter, and uh, we'll see you guys real soon. So anyways, man, just excited for what God is doing here in the region. It honestly uh, is incredible. And uh, like I said, we're just happy to uh, play a a small part in it. Hey, this morning, I'm gonna be teaching out of the Gospel of Luke. The Gospel of Luke uh, and in chapter 17 where Jesus is speaking to his disciples about the nature of the kingdom of heaven, which is his most talked about topic in the New Testament, and uh, explaining to them some of what it means to count the cost to be a follower of Christ. You've heard me say this before, but I think it bears repeating. Costless Christianity only produces powerless Christianity. There is a cost to, to follow Christ. And Jesus here in in Luke 17 is helping describe to his disciples some of the things that they should anticipate as followers uh, of him. And I I love Luke. I love the way that that he writes in a forensic way about the life of Christ, probably because his background is as a physician. He also writes the history of the New Testament church, which is in the book of Acts. It tells us what it would have been like to be alive during that time period and see some of the things that the disciples saw And in Luke 17, Jesus launches into a dialogue about the nature of offense. And he tells his disciples to anticipate or expect a life filled with these types of things. Watch what Jesus says in verse 1 of Luke 17. Then he said to the disciples, it is impossible. It is impossible that no offenses should come. But woe to him. Through whom they do come. It is impossible. I'm interested by this language because, in a lot of ways, it appears to be the polar opposite of the way that Jesus normally communicates. Jesus normally communicates like this, nothing is impossible to those who believe. And the model and even the methodology of the miracles that he works in the synoptic gospels are teaching us his mastery and sovereignty over the natural world. Nothing is impossible for this God that we serve. It's not a word that he uses in his lexicon outside of verse one here in Luke 17. And so I imagine as the disciples are hearing this language, they're saying, this, this doesn't normally sound like Jesus. This isn't the normal words that he uses in this context. So let us lean in with interest to something that is impossible. It is impossible that no offenses should come. That word offense in the Greek is scandalon, it's where we get the English word scandal, it means a snare or a stumbling block, or a trap, or an offense. How many of you know this morning, there's a difference between being offended and then carrying around a spirit of perpetual offense? There's a difference between being sick and carrying around a perpetual spirit of infirmity. Jesus here is not communicating to his disciples that it's impossible to not carry a spirit of offense. He's saying it's impossible not to encounter offense, offensive things, traps, stumbling blocks on this road of Christ followership. Hear me, friend. It's impossible that you don't get offended. It's impossible that you attend here and agree with everything all the time. I don't even agree with everything all the time, and I'm the one saying it. (laughs) It's impossible that you stay married and never get hurt. It's impossible that you stay in relationships and never experience hardship. And by the way, that's why some people can't handle community. It's easier to be alone than to risk being hurt again. Hear me, friend. Our culture has turned being offended into a full-time job. In fact, the more things that you can be offended by, the more valuable you are to a world that worships pain. And can I tell you, just because you're offended doesn't mean you're right. The culture wants to monetize your pain and then make an identity out of it but the gospel wants to heal your pain and then make a testimony out of it. You decide. Here's what I found. Perpetual victimization and offense will cause you to live an easily manipulated life. By which time, by which every time the culture says jump, you say, how high? The world says, count all the ways that you've been hurt. The gospel says, count all the ways that you've been blessed. The world says that you should stay mad, stay angry, stay upset, stay oppressed. The gospel says, get healed, get healthy, move on, be made new, because only you get to decide what type of life you're going to live moving forward. It's impossible that you don't get offended. What I found is that some people come to church just waiting to find something to be offended by so they can move on somewhere else. And it's amazing the things that Christians are offended by today. They're offended by the lights and the carpet and the pain and the smells and the sound. And you name it, people find a reason to be offended. In fact, it was a few weeks ago and we had an incredible service. And God's doing amazing things in the presence of God. And Somebody came up to me after service. They said, Pastor, I need, to, I need to talk to you. I need to tell you about all the things that God was doing in my life during service. But before I begin... Let me leverage a complaint. This thing I have against you. I said, oh no, here we go. They said, pastor, you were wearing a hat while you were preaching and prophesying. According to what the apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians, that's an offense unto God. Now, I can't stop you from interpreting scripture like a Jehovah's Witness, but I'll encourage you not to. What I've had is people who want to be offended will find something to be offended by. Because when you carry around a spirit of offense, instead of looking for what's right, you look for what's wrong. What can I be upset about today so I can give myself an excuse to not be a part of what Christ is building? Because then we feel like, well, I got all this evidence because I've been hurt before and I've been, you know, all these things. And I'm not trying to minimize church hurt, but the person who's been most hurt by church is Jesus and he still shows up. Beware the scandal of the spirit of offense which has been loosed on our culture. Have you seen it? Man, just a few months ago, I said, I'm not gonna post anything on social media anymore. Don't matter what you post, somebody's upset. Somebody gotta find a reason that they can disagree and be angry, and this is the reason why I'm not here, and this is the and people just upset for the sake of being upset. And can I tell you, just being offended all the time is not a personality. Or at least it's not a personality that you want to support. In verse 4, I love what Jesus says. And he says, and if your brother sins against you seven times in a day, and seven times in a day returns to you saying, I repent, you shall forgive him. The apostle said to the Lord, increase our faith. And the Lord said, but if you have faith as a mustard seed, you can say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. It's almost like Jesus is telling his disciples, this type of living is impossible without a faith or a truth that generates from the outside. Think about the radical things that Jesus says, forgive your brother, love your enemies, do good to those who persecute you, take care of the stranger, don't repay evil with evil. For in this type of living is impossible without a faith or a truth that generates from the outside. Here's why you can love people who do evil to you. Because in the final estimation of things, God himself will balance the books. That's why you can forgive people who don't even deserve it because Christ forgave you when you didn't deserve it. This is why you can love even the people who speak evil against you because God himself will take care of your character. He will stand to defend you. This is the type of God that we serve. But our self-help culture has produced a Gnostic belief that now many Christians fall prey to. The idea that somehow truth generates from within. well pastor I'm just following my heart well how did that work out the last time when truth generates from within whatever I feel becomes the truth that everything else must submit to When truth generates from within, truth is now founded on your subjective experience, not God's sovereign transcendence. When truth generates from within, you alone are the final arbitrator of what is right and wrong because the God you serve is you. And notice how Jesus responds to the request to increase their faith. Essentially, he says, no. Jesus, increase our faith. Sounds like a real spiritual prayer to pray. And Jesus says, focus on what you've already got is it a mustard seed? Well, that may seem small to you, but don't despise the day of small beginnings because in fact, a mustard seed is enough to uproot a mulberry tree or to cast a mountain into the sea. A mustard seed is enough. And can I tell you the quickest way to increase your faith is not by asking God to increase your faith. It's by using what he already gave you to take the next step in your spiritual journey. Because what I use, God gives me more of. It's the parable all the talents to what he gave five to another two to another one and some of us are just putting our talent in the ground we've buried it we're not doing anything with it and we're praying these prayers that God in his good grace cannot answer because until we start using what he's given us he cannot trust us with more well I'll sing on a stage when the crowds gather well I'll lead and be what God wants me to be as soon as I have a title Well, once I have everyone's attention and accolades and compliments, that's when I'll be everything he's asked me to be. Why don't you just start where you're at? Why don't you just serve somebody in front of you? Why don't you just operate with a good attitude? Why don't you use the mustard seed? Because the mustard seed is enough. Increase our faith? No, use what you have and watch the increase that naturally comes. And now it happened as he went to Jerusalem that he passed through the midst of Samaria and Galilee and and Jesus entered a certain village and there there met him 10 men who was lepers. And they stood afar off and, and they lifted up their voices and said, Jesus, master, have mercy on us. And now we know because of the book of Leviticus, And because of first century Roman culture, how they treated folks who had leprosy. They had to live in their own colonies, in their own villages, separated from society. By law, if you were to draw close to somebody who had leprosy, they were required to shout out, unclean, unclean, so that you wouldn't be contaminated with the dysfunction of their own life. But I am struck by something C.T. Studd, the great British missionary once said, Some want to live within the sound of church or chapel bell, but I want to run a rescue shop within a yard of hell. Jesus, because of mercy, has drawn near to the sick and the diseased and the sinful. And even in your attempt to shout unclean, Christ has come close that you may be made new. And as a church, we go into difficult places. And the louder they shout unclean, the more that we draw near because of mercy. And that's about all I heard as I was driving into the city on Sunday night into Seattle. I could hear principalities and powers crying out, unclean! You better not come in this direction. You better not get close to this city because what's on us is going to get on you. But greater is he who is in me than he who is in the world and when we draw near miracles happen I'm not offended when the world acts like the world but I am worried when the church doesn't act like the church Seattle is a leper colony that most have avoided even going near and we're going right into the center of it And when he saw them, he said to them, go show yourself to the priests. And so it was, watch, as they went, they were cleansed. As they went, the miracle transpired. See, it's hard to steer a parked car, hard to achieve balance on a bike that's not moving. Sometimes the miracle is waiting on your movement to become activated in your life. Watch what the Bible says. As a precursor to God doing miracles, go wash yourself in the river, pick up your mat, stretch out your hand, open your eyes, cast your net, draw out the water. And no wonder in this context, we say things like this. Raise your hand. Come to the altar, show up early, stay late, volunteer on a serve team. Let me be clear God is the miracle worker, but it does require your participation. And sometimes we're saying, well, if God wanted to heal me, he just could. But God is not looking to somehow treat you like a robot or some person who has no free will or no volition or no capacity to choose. God is looking for partners and he's looking for friends. That's why Jesus tells his disciples, I no longer call you servants, I call you friends because friends know the master's business. Scripture says, lay hands on the sick and they will recover. Why does it require our participation? Because God is looking for partners. Well, if God wanted to do it, he just would. No, he wants to. But sometimes because of the stubbornness of our own life or the bad theology that we've bought into, we think that God's love is something that he does to us, not something he does with us. No, friend, it requires your participation. And one of them, when he saw it, he was healed, returned and with a loud voice glorified God. And he fell down on his face at the feet of Jesus, giving him thanks, and I love this. And he was a Samaritan. 10 was healed and one came back. Hear me friend, for every 10 people you bless, only about one ever comes back to say thanks. But don't allow someone else's lack of gratitude to be the reason you give up. Let me tell you a true story this morning. There was a Baptist preacher in England named Francis Dixon leading a fairly normal congregation. And following a fairly normal Sunday service, a stranger stood up at the back and raised his hand and asked if he could share a testimony. Pastor Dixon irritated at the interruption, looked at his watch and said, sir, you have three minutes. And the man proceeded with his story. He said, sorry, pastor, it won't take long. I've just moved into the area but just a few months ago I I was visiting some relatives in Sydney and I found myself walking down George Street And a strange little white-haired man stepped out from a shop doorway, put a pamphlet in my hand, and said, Excuse me, sir, are you saved? If you die tonight, are you going to heaven? I, I was astonished by these words. No one had ever asked me that. I thanked him courteously, and all the way home to London, this puzzled me. I called a friend, and thank God he was a Christian, and he led me to Christ." And later that week, Pastor Dixon flew to Adelaide, Australia to preach a three-day conference in a little Baptist church. After one of the services concluded, a woman came up to him for some counseling and he wanted to establish where she stood with Christ. And so he asked her if she was a believer and she said, I used to live in Sydney. And just a couple of months back, I was visiting some friends doing some last-minute shopping on George Street. And a strange little white-haired man stepped out of a shop doorway, offered me a pamphlet, and said, Excuse me, madam, are you saved? If you die tonight, are you going to heaven? I was so disturbed by these words that when I got home to Adelaide, I knew this Baptist church was on the next block from me. I sought out the pastor, and he led me to Christ. Pastor Dixon was now very puzzled. Twice in two weeks, he had heard the same story. He then flew to preach in Mount Pleasant Church in the city of Perth. When his teaching series was over, the senior elder of that church took him out for lunch, and he asked the elder how he got saved. I grew up in a church from the age of 15. I never made a commitment to Jesus. I just hopped on the bandwagon like everyone else. But because of my business skill, I grew up in a place of influence. And I was on a business trip to Sydney just three years ago, and an obnoxious, spiteful little man stepped out of a shop doorway, offered me a religious pamphlet, and accosted me with a question, excuse me, sir, are you saved? If you die tonight, are you going to heaven? I tried to tell him I was a Baptist elder. He wouldn't listen to me. I was seething with anger all the way home. I told my pastor, thinking he would sympathize, but he agreed. He had been disturbed for years knowing that I didn't have a personal relationship with Christ, and he was right. My pastor led me to Jesus just three years ago. Pastor Dixon flew home that next day amazed at the grand coincidence of hearing three similar testimonies. The following week, Pastor Dixon found himself speaking at the Kinswick Conventions in the Lake District. And he threw in these three testimonies. At the close of this teaching series, four elderly pastors came up and explained that they had too been saved between 25 and 30 years earlier. Through that same little man on George Street, offering them a pamphlet and asking them that question. The following week, Pastor Dixon flew to a similar convention in the Caribbean for missionaries. He shared the same testimony. At the close of his teaching, three missionaries came forward and said that they had also been saved between 15 and 25 years earlier by that same little white-haired man. They asked the same question on George Street in Sydney. Now, Pastor Dixon was shook. He stopped in Atlanta, Georgia to speak at a naval chaplain convention. Here for three days, he spoke to over a thousand naval chaplains. Afterwards, the chaplain general took him out for a meal, and he asked the chaplain how he became a Christian. He said, it was miraculous. I was working on a naval battleship and living a reprobate life. We were doing exercises in the South Pacific, and we were docked at Sydney Harbor. And one night I got blind drunk I got on the wrong bus and somehow jumped off on George Street. As I got off the bus, I thought I saw a ghost as this man jumped out in front of me, pushed a pamphlet in my hand and said, sailor, are you saved? If you die tonight, are you going to heaven? The fear of God hit me so strong, I was shocked sober. I ran back to the ship and sought out the chaplain. He led me to Christ. I soon began to prepare for the ministry under his guidance and I am now in charge of a thousand chaplains who are bent on soul winning today. And six months later, that London pastor flew to a conference for 5,000 Indian missionaries in the most remote part of northeastern India. At the end, the head missionary took him to his humble little hut for a simple meal. And he asked, as a Hindu, how he came to Christ. He said, I grew up in a very privileged household. I worked for the Indian diplomatic mission and I traveled the world. And one period of diplomatic service took me to Sydney. I was doing some last minute shopping and I was walking on George Street when a courteous white haired little man stepped out in front of me and offered me a pamphlet and said, excuse me, sir, are you saved? If you die tonight, are you going to heaven? I thanked him very much, but this disturbed me. I got back to my town and I sought out our Hindu priest but he couldn't help me. And he advised me to, to satisfy my curiosity. I should go talk to the missionary at the end of the road. That was good advice because that day the missionary led me to Christ. I quit Hinduism and began to prepare for the ministry. I left the diplomatic service and here I am today by God's grace in charge of all these missionaries who have together led 100,000 people to Christ. Eight months later, Pastor Dixon found himself preaching in Sydney. He asked the local Baptist minister if he knew of a little elderly white-haired man who handed out tracts on George Street. And he replied, yes, I do. His name is Mr. Frank Janor, although I don't think he does it anymore because he is so frail and elderly. Two nights later, they went to meet Frank in his little apartment. They knocked on the door, and, and this tiny, frail shell of a man greeted them. He sat them down and he made them tea. He was so frail that he was slopping the tea into the saucer as his hand shook. The London preacher sat there and told him of all these accounts from the previous three years. And the little man sat there with tears running down his cheeks. And he told them his story. I was stationed on an Australian warship. I was living a reprobate life in a crisis. I really hit the wall. And one of my colleagues to whom I gave literal hell was there to help me. He led me to Jesus, and the change in my life was night to day in 24 hours. I was so grateful to God. I promised God that I would share Jesus and a simple witness with at least 10 people a day, and God gave me strength to do that. Sometimes I was ill, and I couldn't do it, but, but I made, made up for it in the days that I missed. I have done this for over 40 years. In my retirement years, the best place was on George Street, where I saw hundreds of people a day. I got lots of rejections, but a lot of people courteously took the tract. In 40 years of doing this, I have never heard of one single person coming to Jesus until today. Two weeks later, Mr. Frank Janor would pass away, suffering from Parkinson's, cancer, and dementia. I doubt Frank's face would have ever appeared on a billboard. He probably never made it on the conference circuit. Frank wasn't ever on staff at a church and he never held a mic behind a pulpit. In fact, no one except a little group of Baptists in Sydney ever even knew about Frank's ministry until today. But I can tell you this, his name was famous in heaven. Heaven knew Frank Janor and can you imagine the welcome he received when he went home to glory? See friends, it's true. Simple obedience changes history and when obedience marries perseverance, perseverance, no power in hell can stand against it. In verse 17, the story continues, so Jesus answered and said, were there not ten that were cleansed? But where are the nine? Were there not any found who returned to give glory to God except this foreigner So Jesus said to him, arise, go your way. Your faith has made you well. It was the unexpected, the unusual, the lesser, the weaker, the outside of the covenant who came back to give thanks. Which means this, friend, God is more interested in your attitude than he is in your pedigree. Being made well was not the same as being made better. Nine out of the 10 got healed, but the one who came back was made whole. Gratitude took a physical miracle and turned it into a whole life transformation. The goal of Jesus wasn't just a healing from leprosy, but a fullness of life that came along with it. How many times do we stop short of fullness because we are satisfied with the pain going away when God, in fact, wanted to restore everything the enemy stole? And Jesus heals 10 lepers. As they're going to show themselves to the chief priest to verify that they have been healed and can enter back into society, the miracle happens in their life. But there's one who with gratitude in his heart comes back to to give God thanks. And the Bible uses two different words to describe these two different experiences. 10 were healed, but one was made well. I imagine in my mind's eye that this condition called leprosy, which was probably the most scary disease of their day, which caused spots on people's skin and gangrene, and it caused bones to decay and flesh to decay and eventually would kill the person who had it. I I imagine by the time that these 10 showed themselves to the priest, the infection was healed. But I kind of imagine the one who came back to give thanks, not only was he healed, but God did a recreative miracle in his life. And everything the enemy stole through sickness, God by his spirit regenerated. And can I tell you that we don't just serve the God who makes us better. We serve the God who restores everything the enemy has stolen from your life. He doesn't just heal your pain. He makes the enemy pay for all the trouble that he's put you through. It's kind of like the story of Job. After he goes through his testing and his trial and his tribulation, God doesn't just heal him. He says, I'm giving you back more than you ever had before. And I just believe in my spirit for your life, friend, that this is a year that's going to make the last 10 years of toil And pain worth it, where the abundance of God catches up with your life story and so overwhelms you with blessing and abundance that you go, you know what? It's been worth it to be faithful to the upward call of God, which is in Christ Jesus. And so my encouragement for you today as a pastor is to keep going and to keep standing and to keep fighting. And even when you feel like you haven't been thanked, and even when you feel like you haven't been noticed, could you keep gratitude in your heart towards the things of God, Knowing that a simple thank you goes a real long way in God's upside down kingdom. In fact, when a believer comes back to give God thanks, I think it signals to heaven that he can trust you with what's coming next. I feel like last week was probably the busiest week that we've had. We had five days of prayer, 6 a.m., folks gathering. We had youth conference in the middle of the week. We went right into four services on Sunday morning, revival service Sunday night. Monday morning was pastor's network meeting. Monday night was pursuit night. By the time that I got into bed Monday night, I had negative left in the tank. My voice hurt. My body hurt. Everything in my existential existence was in pain. I'm just trying to say my prayers but before I drift off to sleep and The only thing that I can muster is, thank you, God, you have been so much better than we deserve. Can I tell you, the older I get, the shorter my prayers become. I'm not trying to impress God with my dialogue. I'm not trying to impress him with big words. He invented them. He knows it. But I was just overwhelmed with the gratitude of what God is doing in this region. Sometimes I gotta pinch myself to make sure I'm not dreaming. It's incredible what God is doing. And I think a heart of gratitude is what tells God he can trust us with the increase. God we're just here to give thanks why because it's your kindness and your goodness that still leads us under repentance It's still the goodness of God showing off in the land of the living And I think so often in our busy culture as soon as we get the breakthrough we put it in our review mirror and we're on to the next request and by the time that we get to prayer we've got a list of complaints that God better address by the time that I get up tomorrow And what if this week you could interject just a little gratitude into your prayer? life and see what God would do in the spirit of your mind. I bet you would have blessing and abundance and increase like you've never had before. I bet the joy of your salvation would overwhelm your life. I bet all of a sudden you would have clarity like you haven't had in quite a while because a little gratitude, it goes a long way. I don't just want to be healed. I don't just want to see God heal this region. I want him to make the enemy pay for every year of bondage the Northwest has suffered under. And in order to do that, we got to go back to the cross and say, thank you, God. You've been better than we deserve. Come on, would you stand as we close? And let me pray for you. Let me encourage you in the Lord. I believe that we are a house of miracles and we are a house of outpouring because we are a people who have learned the art of coming back to say thanks. And could we conclude this service today by calling back to our memory all of the times God has been better than we deserve. Father, we love you. God, we honor you. Before we ask for anything, we're just here to say thank you. For your grace and your mercy and your kindness and your goodness which has made all the difference in our life's story now we thank you today that you have been so much better than we could ever deserve that we have been on the receiving end of your outpouring and your abundance And God, I pray for those today under the sound of my voice, those who are not only looking for healing, but are looking for restoration in different areas of their life. And God, I thank you that you are the one who repays what the enemy has tried to steal, kill, and destroy. And so I declare over your life today, life and life more abundantly. That 2022 is a year of God's favor. So God, we receive from you. We say, do your best work in us and through us. We'll give you all the praise and glory. In Jesus' name, come on, all God's people said amen. 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 Friend, if you're here today and you need prayer before you leave, I'm going to invite you to these altars. I'd love to add my faith to yours to see God do a miracle in your life. If not, God bless. Thanks so much for joining us. Come on, would you help invite a friend? See you next week. Let's build the house of God together. God bless.